I want to begin today with the word paradox. Paradox. Now, that might be a new word for some of you. Some of you might know exactly what that means. Let me give you a definition. It's very simple. A paradox is a statement that seems to contradict itself, but yet makes a profound point. Here's some examples. Here's an easy one that I, I use all the time. Less is more. It seems to contradict itself, right? But any interior decorator will tell you that if you have too many things, the room looks cluttered. Less is more. Or if you're working on promotional material, marketing, if you have too much stuff on the page, that's bad. Less, more people will read it. Less is more. See what I mean? Here's, here's a couple more examples. Nobody goes to that restaurant. It's too crowded. <laughs> I want to stay away from that one. Uh, or hopefully nobody says this about you, deep down, you're really shallow. <laughs> and we could go on and on. Paradox is, is a really valuable term. One author said, look, there's a lot of paradoxes within a church. I'll give you a couple of examples. These are problem paradoxes in a church. Uh, he said, people want something new, fresh, and exciting, but do not want to change. Ah, there's a problem paradox. Uh, here's one that involves me. People want deep, interesting, relevant, and well-illustrated messages, but want them to be short and simple. <laughs> I just want to let you know, I do not mind that tension at all. I want those same things. I want to go deep, but I want it to be short and simple too. Well, there are many paradoxes in Christianity. That's one of the key uh, um, qualities of the Christian faith. In fact, the heart of Christianity is the cross. That is a paradox. The cross is a paradox. There's a writer named Joseph Son that explains it this way. He writes, Jesus described the outcome of his crucifixion as to his own glorification. Yet death by crucifixion was one of the most shameful modes of execution. How could that shameful mode of death be glorifying to God? The answer becomes clear when one sees what that act has revealed to the world in Christ's voluntary suffering for the salvation of mankind, the true nature of God was revealed. Through his death, he was shown to be perfect love, utterly and unconditionally giving itself to others. The glory of God shines through the beauty and splendor of self-sacrifice as nowhere else. So right at the heart of Christianity, the cross is a great paradox. The gospel itself is good news of great paradoxes. That God is glorified in Christ's shameful death. That we become alive in Christ by dying to our former selves. That when we are weak, then we are strong. Because we tap into Jesus' strength. That in our humility, we are lifted up to greatness. Ah, the paradoxes of Christianity. And Jesus taught us by his life on earth. We're going to think back to his life on earth. As Jesus, the man who was God, walked the earth, his life taught us that servanthood is the great paradox of the Christian life. And this is where our new series begins. Welcome to Community Grace and to the Why Am I Here series, which we're starting today. Uh, I've been looking forward to this for a long time. I hope you have too. Let me read you the promotional description that we posted on Facebook, uh, just to explain what this series is going to be all about. 
Join us on a journey of discovery to answer life's most fundamental question, why am I here? Have you stopped to think about that question? Why am I here? Here's a clue to the answer. You were created by God and for God. You are not an accident. Even before he created the universe, God had you in mind, and he planned you for his purposes. And until you understand that, life will never make sense. It is only in God that we discover our identity, our meaning, our purpose, our significance, and our destiny. Every other path leads to a dead end. Discovering how God has shaped you, and that's an acronym that we'll study this fall, has shaped you includes your mix of gifts, your spiritual gifts, that's the A, the S, your passions, that's your heart, that's the H, your abilities, that's the A, your personality, and your experiences. As you discover God's unique design of your life, it will focus your energy, it'll give meaning to your life, and will prepare you for eternity. Join us this fall from September 20th, that's today, to November 1st on a journey to discover how and why God made you. And a key answer we're going to find, and I'm just going to lay this out right up front, is because everyone, God has given everyone a mission and a ministry. Everyone, including you. He has given you a mission and ministry. This is a theme that we're going to unpack, and the task for you now is to figure out what that is for your life in this moment. Now, how can you get the most out of this journey this fall here at Community Grace? A few, th- a few ways. First, join a small group. That's the way we interact, fill out the assessments, and work on those uh, in relationship. Give this six-week series your top priority. It will be well worth it. The more you put into it, the more you'll get out. Pick up a study guide, as has been mentioned. They're out there for sale for five bucks. Each person needs their own because of the personalized tools and exercises in them. So make sure you have one of those, and that's how you'll get the most out of this fall together. So let's look at what Jesus taught us about servanthood, the great paradox. And we'll start with his radical call to servanthood. If you have your notes, you'll see that, the radical call to servanthood. And and most of us want to live lives of purpose. Most of us want to give ourselves to a worthy cause. Some of us are fully engaged in that, some aren't. But all our years in this earth, here's the challenge of living, especially where we live just in the 21st century in the West, in this technological age, this marketing age, this very man-centered, self-centered age. Years of bombardment we have faced. I heard that by the time the average person is eight, the average child is 18 years old, they will see one million commercials that are all designed, advertisements that are all designed to unsettle you and to make you the center of your own universe. Okay, so we, all, we are bombarded by this self-centered message that says, you are number one. You need to spend your time pursuing you. This is the path to fulfillment. So we have to deprogram that heavy influence in order to follow Christ and really truly live a life of purpose. So it's easy to understand our fear that if we sacrifice some of those own personal agendas, it might not be worth it. It's easy to fear that, oh man, if I give all that time and energy and money to to help other causes, um, you know, my bank account's not going to grow. So that's a valid 
concern. Right? That's the reality in our lives. Those are the things that we're concerned about. That we're going to be busier than ever and not, and not see the benefit from that. Will it really make a difference? Now, the first disciples of Jesus wrestled with those exact same questions. But the decision to follow Jesus radically changed their lives. Think of Peter, the fisherman, first called by Jesus. He and his friends were called by Jesus to give up their fishing business and follow Jesus. And they did. And they still had all these questions, is it going to be worth it? And at first, it was radically awesome, the things that they saw. They saw teaching like they'd never heard before. They saw miracles, people being healed and people's hearts being moved and touched. They saw people being raised from the dead. I mean, this is pretty awesome. It was all going really well for a short time. But then the intensity uh, began to grow very quickly. Jesus kept attacking the beliefs and practices of the hypocritical Pharisees who were in uh, power and authority at the time. And this created hostility, of course, among them. Uh, Jesus started seeming to promise that his followers are going to get into trouble with the, author- with the authorities. Let me say that again. Jesus promised that his followers are going to get in trouble with the authorities. Guess what? That hasn't changed. So then Jesus started using language like, if you want to follow me, you must die to yourself. You must pick up your cross. You must lay down your life. He started teaching things like, if anyone wants to be served, he must first become a a servant of all. Hmm. You can just feel the disciples' tension. In Mark 10, 28, Peter asked Jesus, probably all the disciples wanted to ask. He said, see, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? You see how he's articulating these questions? And then in verses 29 and 30, Jesus answered. He said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake And for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold, now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands, with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. He's just dropping a bomb on, on that answer. He promised Peter it would be worth it all. It won't be easy, but it will be worth it all. There will be persecution. But you will receive incredible reward from him in this life and the next. If you would circle that word hundredfold on your notes as his exclamation point that Jesus uses to be serious about this. When we leave our self-centered pursuits and join his church family, we rejoice So Jesus was trying to teach them this, but first, a few verses down, we see the disciples are still not getting it. (laughs) They're they're often slow to learn. We are too. They still thought that self-centeredness, not servanthood, would would provide the only pathway to what they longed for. Okay, we're stuck in this. Something something we have to learn and give give up. So they started arguing about what? Uh, They started arguing about who would be the greatest in the kingdom. All right. Somebody called this the dumbest argument in the entire world. 
when you're following Jesus, arguing about who's going to be the greatest. Uh, but they were arguing about that. Who would be the most likely to hit it big or be the most successful or the most influential? Uh, and we're a lot like the disciples. Uh, deep down inside, we're still very self-centered. And it's a process of growth to get out of that because we're just convinced inside that being self-centered is the pathway to what I want in life. Listen to Jesus. He says, not so. How did Jesus respond? He gave them and us today a radical call to servanthood. You really want to be great? You really want to be happy? Then you must be a servant to all. Here are his words in verses 42 through 45. And Jesus called them to him and said, listen, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And Jesus begins the paradox, turning the world upside down. This is authentic servanthood, and this is the radical call to servanthood. God wants to make us like his son Jesus, and this is what it looks like. But we think of all kinds of objections, don't we? We, we ask, Lord, again, if... Ah, I hear that, but if I give up my time and my money and my pursuits, my, my entertainment to follow you, will it really be worth it? I only got one life on this earth. Will it really be worth it? If I serve you this much, it's going to drain my energy and my resources. And will I really enjoy it or will I dread it? Will my life be more unfulfilled or unfulfilled? This is the radical paradox where radical servanthood yields radical reward. It's what Jesus promises. And it's while the disciples were wrestling with all this, and hopefully we're all wrestling with this now too for our lives, that they witness the most powerful portrait of servanthood. These are the verses that Matt read just a few minutes ago. John 13 is our key text today, if you want to turn there again now, if you're off that page in your Bible. This is the night of Jesus' last supper, his last Passover that he celebrated. It's also the night, they call it, that the foot washer didn't show up. The night the foot washer didn't show up. See, in that day... People walked everywhere, and they walked dusty roads in sandals. And so it became a custom. It just became a custom that when you entered a house, there would be a servant there with a bucket of water uh, pouring over the person's feet, taking out their sandals, pouring it over the people's feet, taking the towel and washing and drying off the feet. And this was a really nice way to give your guests your best welcome, especially because the way they ate was at the short tables reclined at the tables. So everybody's feet were in the face of somebody else next to them, right? So it became a really appreciated custom uh, to, for everybody to have clean feet when they walked in the door. Now, remember, they had just been arguing about who would be the greatest. And then as the disciples entered the upper room to celebrate that Passover dinner, the disciples probably started noticing, um, there's nobody here to wash our feet. What should we do? 
Should we wash our own feet? Should somebody wash Jesus' feet? And in the end, they didn't do anything. They started eating. Let's read John 13, 3 through 5 again. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. We'll stop right there. The first thing to notice there is that word knowing. Jesus knew who he was. He knew why he was here. He knew that he was the most, he was God. He was the most powerful person in the universe. He knew why he was here. That's what enabled him to do this very thing. And listen, it is knowing who you are and why you are here that enables you also to live this life to its fullest. So Jesus knew that about himself. We can too. Now Jesus, knowing that he was the most powerful person in the universe, serves them. And then he sits back down and teaches them this. If you read forward, verses 12 through 17. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he sat back down, laid back down, He said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you as if you do them. As we meditate on this scripture, I want to point out three things about servanthood, three truths. Number one, a servant does not need to announce that they are serving. At no point as you you read this story, did Jesus, do you see Jesus standing up and announcing, I am about to serve you now. He just gets up and begins serving. And we follow his example. So this fall, as we put the things that we're discovering into practice, just get up and start serving. Number two, a servant is a person of incredible strength. Jesus, again, was the most powerful person ever. And what did he do with that? He taught us that being a servant was a sign of incredible strength. People just don't do this unless there's a strength there. So when God says, I'm conforming you to the image of my son, Jesus, this is much of what he has in mind. This kind of strength for us to be strong servants and useful to the world, building up the world, helpful to people, caring for people in such a way that everyone in the world notices that we are different. And that's a sweet place for us to be a fulfillment and a great, powerful testimony as the world watches us and sees God glorified. Number three is wrong on your notes. You have to write this in. It was printed wrong. Sorry about that. 
Number three, write this in. Being a servant includes receiving as well as giving. And this is important, especially in America. We're just so filled with pride and independence. Sometimes, and oftentimes, it's harder to receive help than it is to give it. Don't steal that blessing from other people when you're in your time of need for them to serve you. We're in this together. This is a testimony of God's goodness. And this is the great paradox of servanthood. Our lives most fulfilled when we're not self-centered? It's amazing, and it's true, and it works every time when you follow Jesus. We are lifted up. God is glorified. And now this fall, then, and for the rest of your life, I want to encourage you, I join Jesus in encouraging you to take the gamble of servanthood. Take the gamble. Is it worth the risk? Take it and find out. That the Lord is good. All this does feel like a gamble. We want to achieve, be successful. We want to live lives of purpose and meaning. But it seems much more logical to put your needs first, which is why this is a paradox. So take the gamble of trusting Jesus, following Jesus, and giving your life to others as he gave his to us. One of the greatest texts in Scripture that teaches this is Philippians 2, 3 through 8. This is the Apostle Paul's great text of the example that Jesus gave us in this way, in this area. As we ask, shouldn't we put our needs first? Listen to this. Philippians 2, 3 through 8 says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. That's pretty clear, right? How much do we do from our own self-centeredness? Nothing. But in Humility, count others more significant than yourselves. This takes a while to get there, but this helps. Let's read on. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, listen to his example, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That means hung on to, clung on to. But instead of hanging on to that right that he had, He let it go. He emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even a death on a cross. So here's Jesus calling in our our world, especially right here now in the time that we live in a very entertainment-driven culture. Uh, Jesus calls us not to emotional moments of hype, but to a life of servanthood. Will you please pass this on to the people that you're discipling? I I love moments of hype, don't get me wrong. But that's not God's calling in our lives. It's to a life of servanthood. And I mean a life. I mean this characterizes your homes where you're serving each other sacrificially. I mean this is the key to a healthy marriage and healthy parenting and healthy being brothers and sisters, outdoing each other and showing honor, serving each other like Christ would. In our schools, What an amazing testimony it would be for you to be the one giving up your rights and serving other people. In your workplaces, for you to go the extra mile for helping that person that needs help at work, for being a testimony, giving the credit to God. In our church, wow, that's that's a mark of a healthy church right there when we're serving, serving, serving in our lives. Um, 
wisely and appropriately. We've got to care for each other along the way, and we'll talk about that as we go. Uh, in our community, in the grocery store when we're out there, you know, open the door for somebody. Uh, say, say to somebody, you can go first. This is a life of, of serving other people as our first priority. Putting the needs and interests of others before our own is, is the life that Jesus modeled and calls us to. And this is what being filled with the Holy Spirit uh, produces. It produces understanding. It produces boldness and power and excitement, yes, but it produces the, the joy and the love uh, and the fulfillment of this kind of a life where we serve other people by seeing the needs that, are, that need to be met and meeting them. This is why it feels good. Uh, because it's the nature of the Holy Spirit that lives in us that's being fleshed out. Trust Jesus in this great paradox. Take the gamble of servanthood for your life. There are three things that taking this gamble means. All right, one, two, three on your notes. Number one there is servanthood means personal involvement. We've got to do it. Uh, sometimes the risk of a pastor is I can just preach from the stage and have other people do it, all the messy stuff. Mm -mm. No, none of us, none of us gets away with that. We've got to get dirty. We've got to take the time to make the sacrifices and to take the sufferings. If you wash people's feet, your hands have to get wet. Pray this right now, if you would, just in your hearts. God, where do you want me to be personally involved? Meeting the needs that I see. Why am I here? What is the, to use the skills and the shape that you have given me? For what purposes? And he's going to answer that. And we're going to move closer to, the, to a, a very clear answer for each of us in this church as we go on this fall. So personal involvement. Second, servanthood requires Christ-like unselfishness. It's at this point that I want, I want you to think of the scales of your attention and your affections and, the, and just the priority you give in your life uh, to taking care of your own interests and pleasure and others. And it usually looks like this for, for most of us, unless we've been working at it for a while. Servanthood requires Christ-like unselfishness. So the goal as we set out into this fall and in the rest of our lives is to, to work on tipping the scales. Remember what Jesus said? Consider others more important than yourself. So we've got a long ways to go to get even and then even more others focused. And we're going to change the world and be more fulfilled than we've ever been before seeking our own pleasures. That's a guarantee from Jesus. By the power of the Holy Spirit that lives in us. Now, as life's battles rage, you may not feel happy, but look at what Jesus promises. If you, if you have your sermon notes there, you see at the end of John 13, that passage, you look at the last verse, verse 17, it says, if you know these things, I'm sorry, this is number three, by the way, that I'm filling in here. I forgot to say this. Servanthood results, number three, in ultimate happiness. This is, this is how God is good. Okay, so write happiness and connect that word happiness with your pens, to that word blessed in John 13, 17. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Now the word, the reason that we're connecting the word blessed and happiness is because they are the same word. The Greek word there is makarios, and it literally means happy. And I'm not a big fan of the English translations, most of them, putting the word blessed there. Because we just don't connect the word happy with that word. But that's what that word is. Jesus is good. His radical call to, to servanthood produces happiness that we're seeking all the time. A real lasting joy 
all the promises of God in this life and then eternal rewards in the next life from this very thing right here. This is a promise from God. Now here's where as the ups and downs of life happen and we're in the mess. It doesn't always feel happy every moment. That may come later, but it will come. It will come later in this life and the next if you're following Christ. Whatever the circumstances are, they don't matter. They might stay messy, but your joy will be full. And now, before giving some specific next steps that we can take, uh, this is how we usually close messages, there's one more thing I want to take a moment to address, just because of the time of the world we live in, and that is the unique time of 2020 and beyond. In the description in the Old Testament of King David's mighty men, there were in 1 Chronicles chapter 12, those listed of Issachar, men who had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. Now, we've all been living in 2020 together, and there is a need for us to understand the times and know what we ought to do. Serving Christ is always going to be different for every person, every family, every church, and any time and any culture over the last 2,000 years and however many more years we have before the Lord returns. It's always going to look different for everybody. God has, but 2020 has been a year of natural disasters, plague, and government overreach. And that's, that's kind of what we're living in right now. Here's the truth. God has always used plagues, natural disasters, and government overreach. It's all through Scripture from the beginning books, the Pentateuch, written right into the expectations of life in this world. It's all through the history books. It happens. All of those happen. They're all in the prophets that they're happening now, the reasons that they're happening. Uh, Jesus and the apostles explain why they've happened, why Jesus came on the cross uh, to redeem all of those but they also explain what what it's going to look like when the end times come. The book of Revelation is to reveal what it looks like when the end times come. We are living in times when the world is in great sin. It's also in great division and great upheaval and risk of collapse. And the world has been here before. Uh, It looks a little different this year than than it has before, but the world has been here before. And as you study history, this is very similar to the year 1347, when the bubonic plague wiped out a third of Europe and more in the rest of the world. But that bubonic plague in the 14th century led to the Protestant Reformation, the greatest revival in all of the human history. Now study this history. It's fascinating. The 14th century was a time just like today of great sin, global sin. And we could talk about the effects of those and what that looks like. It was a time of great man-centeredness. The global population had, by and large, drifted away from Christ. When, human, when the human-centered world, though, lives on its own without God long enough, it begins to collapse and Man loses his faith in man as the solution. This is the cycle of the human existence. And that's when repentance and faith in Christ can follow on a large scale. Reformation and revival comes through our mission and our ministry. 
our obedience and worship to God. That's what it comes through. I really think, as I've studied history and look at the world today, that we have an opportunity, and we might live through this in the coming years, to see the greatest movement of Christ and Reformation and revival that the world has seen in the last five to 700 years. It's setting up for that right now. Is it comfortable? Absolutely not. It's really uncomfortable and really messy. And that's God's point sometimes. So this is a major part of the answer of why am I here right now? And I want us to be aware of that. Now, our job, our, our load to carry is not to save the entire world. That's a burden that would crush us if, if we're worried about all these things that we see on media. Those aren't our burdens to carry. Our burden is to carry what he has given us to carry, to be his beloved children, to be his beloved children, to love him back, to worship him, and to answer what is the part that he has given us to do in this world. And that's what he expects of us. So I'm so happy to have this Why Am I Here series. In this time, preparing us to go forward, whatever the next few months hold. We're going to walk and live through it together, as Christians have been doing since the beginning, victoriously, together. So we've begun to answer this question, why am I here? And just to review, we've, we've seen that God made us for a purpose. That purpose, as we live it out, brings glory to him, brings fulfillment in our lives that we won't find anything else and anywhere else. By picking up the towel and meeting the needs that you see around, around you, so you have to ask, what is your towel? That's our focus. And he has something special and specific for your life and for our church. And we're going to explore that as we go in the next several weeks. So three next steps to take today. I want to encourage you, number one is to say to God, I will take the gamble of servanthood. Now, you can't promise God that you're going to be perfect at it. Uh, if I were you, I wouldn't dare promise perfection. But say, I'm going to take this gamble. Uh, where, you know, where have you placed your bets in life? Is it on a self-centered lifestyle, or are you going to place your bets on Jesus' model, following his model of servanthood? If you say, I will say yes to you and follow Jesus, I'm going to, I'm going to set out to tip the scales. And yeah, I give a lot of attention to myself. I'm going to start tipping the scales and start seeing others' needs that I can meet with my time and my priority, my sacrifice. That's what it looks like. And you'll find that following Jesus is the only pathway to fullness in life. And here's the specific challenge. We like specific challenges. I want to call everybody to consider this, to join me in changing your faith. If you're on Facebook, which most of us are, uh, if you're not, congratulations, great job. <laughs> but if you are, <laughs> uh, it gives you the option to say religious views. Would you change with me your religious view, consider this, at least for the fall, to servant of Christ. Let's proclaim who we are, who God calls us to be, and proclaim that is the path to everything the human wants in life. And I want to take a moment to celebrate something that needs to be celebrated, and that is the, the level of servanthood here at, at Community Grace. The famous Pareto Principle. You may not have heard of that word before, but you've heard the principle most likely. That is that 20% of the people do 80% of the work. Okay? And that's not just in churches. That's, that's an organizational principle. Uh, but it's very common in churches. 
But I just want to let you know, as I've been here almost a year now and have mapped out who's doing what and have gotten to know people that are serving in the church, as I add up all the de- elders, deacons, trustees, mission commission, office and office volunteers, small group leaders, everyone serving in their small groups, youth ministry, worship and tech team, children's ministry, all the greeters, ushers, coffee stop workers, sanitizing team, and on and on and on we go. This is a church of about 200 people or so, and we have well over 50% that are active on a regular basis in serving in the church. And I just want to stop and celebrate that. This is a healthy church that wants to grow. God is leading us to grow to the next levels. However he leads, however we obey and follow him. If you don't know where to start serving Christ, hang on and we'll get there uh, through this series. Uh, But the number one place that we want to urge you today, this week, as small groups kick off, is to join a small group. And that's the next step. Number two is I will participate in a small group, not just join, that is the first step, but to be active. Small groups are the great uh, place um, to start serving with the gifts that God has given you. You can contribute in lots of different ways, and the leaders are prepared to handle how can we all pitch in and and serve this group, serve each other, love each other, serve the world, and serve our communities. It's awesome. Uh, And that is exactly what we're going to be walking through in the material this week together in a small group. So that would be the first next step. Again, you have the insert in your bulletin. You can drop that in the communication, um, in in the boxes on the walls, or stop by the uh, table out there and, and get connected, or online, anytime. And then finally, I want to I encourage everybody who's not a member of the church. Uh, number three, I will attend the membership class on Saturday. Uh, that's this Saturday. And here's the thing about church membership. When you commit to a church family, the church family commits to you on another level. Uh, this local expression of Jesus' church is willing and ready to commit that to you. And so I would encourage you to join me there. Saturday, 9 to 11 o'clock, you can RSVP on your communication card today or by notifying the church office this week so we can print enough materials and have those things ready for you on Saturday. All right, we are launched. We are ready to kick off. I can't wait to hear the reports uh, from small groups all throughout the week. Let's pray and give this all over to God. And so you know, the the sermon notes look a little bit different now because they're three-hole punched on full paper to go right into your study guides Uh, and your small group leader may use your notes and your thoughts, so write those down a lot uh, as part of your group meeting. So that's what explains that. But let's pray and give this all to God. Lord God, I thank you so much that the day has come to focus on this. After this season, we'll continue to grow in all the ways that, that your spirit leads this church, but for now, oh, to follow Christ in, in this that he modeled I can't think of anything that's going to change our lives, our families, our church, our world uh, like this will. And so I pray that your Holy Spirit will fire us up to do this very thing and and also humble us as well and and lead us to uh, confession of sins and allow you to heal and restore us like only you can do. You're so good. We want to worship you now as we sing and give and and celebrate and, and talk and have fellowship and go from here. In Jesus' name, for his glory, amen.